This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, you've taught us in your gospel to endure and to persevere. And so we pray your spirit would come upon us that we might faithfully run the race that has been set before us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Historians talk about the year 1914 as a kind of watershed that changed the course of the 20th century. And when periodizing modern history, historians sometimes refer to the short 20th century, beginning in 1914 and kind of concluding with the fall of Soviet Russia in 1991. And that's because 1914 was so epical in inaugurating a murderous series of conflicts that characterized the whole shape of the 20th century. The Great War showcased new and brutal technologies of war, above all tanks and poison gas and turreted machine guns and barbed wire and trench warfare. And it made such an impression upon the people who fought in it and upon everyone who was observing it that it changed our perception of warfare itself and it gave us new and ambiguous relationships to nation states that have lasted all the way until this day. Before that, the West reveled in nationalism and in the glories of heroism that could be expressed on the battlefield. Europeans and Americans alike could easily intone the lines from Horace, Propatria mori ducet decorum est. It is sweet and proper to die for one's country. Before this war, people could easily talk about progress and the perfectibility of man. But the brutality and the great loss of life in this war shattered the sanguine illusion that in each and every way the world is getting better every day. Those illusions were turned out, were exposed as the myths that they actually are. Europe had turned aside to myths, just as Paul said in our reading from 2 Timothy today. So just before the war in 1909, G.K. Chesterton penned his timeless classic, Orthodoxy, which begins with this striking line. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Westerners saw with terrible exactitude, actually, how true these lines were and how very false the myth of infinite progress really was. And it left them without moorings and in despair. And this was especially true as these machines of war were further refined in the Second World War their murderous efficiency all the more perversely and perfectly calibrated, nowhere more evident than in the horror of the gas chambers invented by the demonic imagination of the Third Reich. And in between these two wars, the philosophy of existentialism arose. And the Algerian philosopher Albert Camus said to the world in his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, in 1942, there is really only one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. And in 1945, just after the war, he wrote, Disaster is today our common fatherland. The despair that settled over the Western world was catalyzed by the brutality displayed in these wars. But the brutality itself did not induce the despair. It was the myths that were believed that induced the despair. We use despair in a casual and kind of colloquial way to describe feelings of despondency, extended sadness, or depression. And those feelings are exactly appropriate to the devastation that were wrought by these conflicts. But in the Christian tradition, despair has a very specific meaning. And that is the absence of the virtue of hope. And that is something very different than those feelings of despondency. 
Despair, in fact, is precisely nihilism, resigning oneself to ultimate meaninglessness because of the shattering of the myths that one once believed about God and humanity. So Christian hope is something very different from the optimism that the late 19th century Europe believed. Hope surprises with its resilience and its unshakability. Those are actually its most distinguishing features. And so the people who hold fast to hope are surprising people. They are people who can endure and persevere. And in our gospel passage for today, Jesus helps us to understand the nature of that Christian hope and the posture that that hope gives us in the world. So our preaching series on Luke for this fall is called Surprise the World. And our passage for today helps us to understand that part of the way the church can surprise the world is to be a people of hope. So in this sermon, I want to sketch three distinctive features of Christian hope that this passage highlights for us. Just to put them all out there at first. The first one is this. Christian hope is based on the well-founded knowledge that God is for us and that he has acted decisively against the forces that devastate his creation in Jesus Christ. Second point is this. Hope recognizes that this work is not yet complete. And because it is not yet complete, there is always evidence that suggests that this claim is not true. We are tempted to believe that God is like the unjust judge and that he is not for us. We are also tempted to believe that God has not acted decisively in Christ and that sin, death, and the devil continue to rule over us. But hope resists these conclusions. Lastly, hope recognizes that precisely because God is not like the judge, Christians are to persevere in praying without ceasing for the justice of God's kingdom to come in its fullness. Okay, so here we go. First point. The first point is that the Christian hope is that God is for us and that he has acted decisively to liberate us from the power of sin, death, and the devil in Jesus Christ. As we look at this feature of hope, We need to remember, as we always do, that when we're reading biblical narrative, we don't just pay attention to the details of the story that's right in front of us. We also look at what immediately comes before this story. And that's true in this case as well. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, he tells us that the Pharisees were asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. They're asking for the signs that would tell them that the kingdom of God was breaking in. And Jesus says something really interesting in response to them. He responds by saying that the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Another way to translate this sentence is, God's reign does not come accompanied by conditions that one observes. The kingdom comes, in other words, invisibly, in ways that are hard to recognize unless you know what you're looking for. It comes in silent and humble ways. It does not come with great fanfare or hype. The revolution will not be televised, in other words. As Mark Sayers says, when the kingdom breaks in, it is not covered on the 24-hour news cycle. Jesus says to the Pharisees, people will not say, look, it's here, or look, it's over there, and when they do, you shouldn't listen to them. Rather, he says this, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what he's saying is that the evidence of whether God is at work and how God is at work is always ambiguous. At times when things seem to be humming along, we can feel optimistic about God's friendliness and benevolence towards us. But at other times, if we're just focusing on what's happening in the world and in our own lives, it seems more rational to conclude that God has abandoned the world or that he is a cruel and demented God like the ancient gods who relished in arbitrarily subjecting people to anguish. 
And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, there is only one place where we can unambiguously and with full transparency see what God's disposition is towards us. There is one place where we can see what the kingdom looks like when it is enfleshed, and that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says. That is, the kingdom of God has been enfleshed in the person of Jesus. God is enfleshed in Jesus Christ to the extent that we can say that if we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know what God sounds like and feels like, if we want to know what he thinks about us, if we want to know what he is doing, if we want to know what we can expect from him, we need to look at Jesus. The theologian Thomas Torrance says, God is really like Jesus. And that means that we cannot go behind the incarnation, for there is, in fact, no God behind the, or behind the back of Jesus Christ. So Christian hope is built upon the conviction that God has acted decisively to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. And every time we pray morning and evening prayer, we return to this central conviction. At the end of each prayer service, we pray the general thanksgiving. And it goes like this. We thank you for our creation, our preservation, and for all the blessings of this life. But above all, we thank you for the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. That is the Christian hope. The Christian hope is the audacity, the courage, to stake our entire existence on the fact that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and to endure in that conviction until the end of days, until Christ returns to bring the work that he began in the incarnation to its fulfillment in his parousia, the second coming of Christ. It is to endure in the conviction that God has shown himself to be for us in Jesus Christ, even when the evidence does not seem to confirm that fact. Whatever the headlines are saying, regardless of what new outrage is exploding in our Facebook and Twitter feeds today, And regardless of who sits on the helm of the fading American Republic or on the thrones of the nations, Jesus is Lord and Jesus wins. That is the Christian hope. And therefore, to be a Christian, as Wendell Berry Berry famously said, is to be joyful though you have considered all the facts. Because we have confidence that God has showed us that he loves us and he is redeeming and restoring all things in Jesus. But this passage also tells us something else about the Christian hope. It tells us that although God has acted decisively in Jesus Christ, this work is not yet complete. It is not finished. It is not that God acted once upon a time in Palestine in Jesus Christ, and now there is this long interlude where nothing is happening, and then Christ comes again. What a terrible and depressing story that would be. Thank God that is not the Christian story. This whole parable... And the passage that comes before it has Jesus anticipating this particular reading of the situation. Jesus tells his disciples in the passage immediately before this one that once he ascends, it's going to be tough to persevere in the confidence that the Son of Man will come again. And then he tells them this parable of the unjust judge to make this critical point. In this time between the times, in this time when Christ has come in his first coming but not in his second coming, you might think that because God goes on letting horrible things happen, that he is rather like the unjust judge. Jesus says that the judge neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And so he ignores the vulnerable widow's plea against her adversary. Our translation says that he ultimately listens to her because she keeps bothering him. But that's not actually what it says. The NRSV actually does a disservice here. 
What it says is that she pummels him or assails him until he responds. And he ultimately grants her plea that so that she will stop violently assaulting him with her plea. It's actually meant to be a little bit funny. Like we can imagine the widow like jumping out of the bushes or like coming up from behind, behind corners or whatever and assaulting this judge until he's afraid to leave his house. That's what it's like. But Jesus is saying, you'll be tempted when I've ascended to think this is what God is like. Because injustice and danger and sickness and anxiety will continue until I return. But no, it is not that God once upon a time did some things in Palestine and then Jesus was resurrected and ascended and has gone silent. It is that what God has done in Christ continues now. That Jesus' atoning and healing ministry goes on now. God is for us because Jesus intercedes for us. Question for you. What does Jesus spend all day, every day doing? Interceding for us. He never rests nor sleeps, but unceasingly, unsleepingly, passionately, and without fail at every moment intercedes for all of us in this room. Right now, you have an intercessor in heaven who never stops praying with great intimacy and fidelity for you. I encourage you when you leave here today, go home and read John 17 and have no doubt that the ministry of intercession that Jesus began in his earthly ministry continues now in his ascended state at the right hand of the Father. That's Christian hope. Okay, here's the last feature of Christian hope that I think our passage reveals to us today. Christian hope recognizes that precisely because God is not like the judge, Christians are to persevere in praying without ceasing for the justice of God's kingdom to come in its fullness. After he tells this little parable, Jesus says, listen to what the unjust judge says. But then he says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? In other words, God's not like the judge. He's infinitely superior to the judge. He is your heavenly father. He will grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. If the widow who pummels the judge with her request gets justice, Jesus is saying, how much more so will faithful Christians who pray day and night receive an answer to their pleas? But let's pause here because we can easily misinterpret this. It's important to understand what Jesus is and is not saying in this this moment. The final sentence in this passage is critical to our understanding of the whole. God is faithful in answering his people's prayers, but Jesus says, even still, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The kind of help that God ordinarily gives, Jesus is saying, is help that builds the faith that the Messiah must see when he returns. And so Jesus is saying that the kind of help we are seeking may not be the help that we get in this age. God hears our our requests and is responsive to them, but he does not always respond to them in the way that we would like. In her new book, Mother Tish talks about the service of the ministration to the sick in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, which has this really profound sense of realism to it. The minister is to pray for healing, just as God brought healing to St. Peter's mother-in-law and to Jairus' daughter. But then the minister is to turn and ask the sick person, have you made a will? That is Christian realism. Lord, we pray you bring your healing. Make a will. It's realistic to look at the age we live in and to calibrate our expectations accordingly. The kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. We still do live in the midst of trouble and sorrow. 
All of us live under a death sentence. What God is doing in us and in the world is to heal us from the inside out so that we are capable of the faith that Jesus must find on the earth when he returns. Help to endure and to persevere is the help that he readily and always grants. There is something about the nature of our sin sickness that requires that we suffer together with Christ as part of our healing and of the healing of the world. St. Paul puts it like this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies, in the way that we live, with the resilience, with the hope that characterizes the body of Christ. Tish and I have a magnet on our fridge that we found at a rough time in our marriage that says, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. That's a message that only a Christian can maintain with integrity and confidence. And that is because only Christianity takes seriously both the ambiguity of history and the meaning of history. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, declared the mystic Julian of Norwich. Because Jesus is Lord... And Jesus wins. We may have to endure all manner of heart-rending and terrible catastrophes now. And the most Christian prayer that we can pray in the midst of those tragedies is that we would be able to endure these things and to represent and to show forth the goodness of Jesus Christ in the midst of that suffering. But we can only pray that way if we are a people of hope who are confident about the ending. Jesus is Lord and Jesus wins. That's Christian hope. We have to carry within us the conviction that endurance is not meaningless. It's not arbitrary. It's actually part of our own healing and of the healing of the world because every act of faithfulness done in response to the gospel will be carried up and folded into that ultimate victory of Jesus and it will resonate and it will resound there with the praise of a thousand tongues of angels in the resurrection. We are joyful as Christians not because we are naive. We know the depth of the struggle of the world. We know it deeper than the people around us do because we know its ultimate sources in sin and death and the devil. But we are joyful precisely because we have considered all the facts. We know that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus wins. If you believe that promise, that is a posture that will surprise the world. We're coming now to the Lord's table. And I pray that as we receive this meal together as a body, it will form us into people of hope, people who are capable of enduring. Every aspect of hope that I have talked about today is summed up here in this meal that Jesus gave us. Wes Hill, who teaches down the street in Ambridge, recently came out with a book on the Lord's Prayer, which says just this. In the Eucharist, Jesus puts himself in our hands so we know exactly where to find him. In that moment, we don't have to wonder whether God is for us. We know he is because we've just tasted his provision. If you are someone today who needs his provision, if you are someone who needs to be formed into a person of hope, if you are someone who needs to endure, and I would submit that's all of us, and come and be refreshed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.